Welcome to Silvacast, a podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge, along with my co-host, Brad Hutnick, and we are both silviculturists with Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. How are you doing today, Brad? Good day, Greg. How are you doing? Why are you asking me a question like that? I just asked you. <laughs> I, I'm doing dandy. I'm just doing dandy. Okay, I'm swell. All right. Well, yeah, that we got that out of the way. <laughs> Today on Silvacast, we're going to continue our conversation with Dustin Bronson from Forest Services Northern Research Station and Casey Menick with our own Division of Forestry about FRM and deer. So I know one of the origins of, of this came out of the Deer Trustee Report and some of the, some of the recommendations that were made with that. Um, so thinking about that, uh, what does FRM tell us about deer? Because I know we're going to be using this with citizens, deer advisory committees and others. So how can we use it in thinking about deer management? So one of the main reasons for this project is to provide deer impact data to the County Deer Advisory Councils or CDACs. Um, we're hoping to give the forestry side of things to these deer quota deliberations. Um, previous data we wasn't at the county level so these more local communities weren't really able to take a look at the regional data and really see how their deer populations were affecting regeneration so by having this county level data that we can bring to the CDACs they'll be able to have better decision making processes and seeing how deer are impacting regeneration mm -hmm. and so as a part of the plot then we're looking at browse um, so how are we actually, how are we collecting that data on browse or how are we measuring it? Yeah, so browse is measured on each species within a plot and then we're also looking at the intensity of browse which we're looking at um, what percentage of stems on those seedlings and saplings have evidence of browse. Um, so it's both a measure of intensity, we can also look at presence and absence, yeah. So it's so it's if a if a seedling has browse on it, is it the percent of this of the seedling that has browse, or at the percent of the seedlings themselves as a whole that have browse, or something similar? Yeah, it's a percent of all of the stems across all of the individual trees. Okay. So the and we call that browse severity index, right? That one through six is that mm -hmm. that's correct, but. I know, Dustin, talking to you, that, that uh, there's some pros and cons to that particular metric that's measured. What, what, what are your thoughts on that, Dustin? <laughs> Being baited in here. Yeah, that is yeah. a bait. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you my two cents. And yeah, I might that's be, what I, I want, be, is your two cents. My, I might be terribly wrong here. Um, so, so how long has this FRM spin out? For two two years, years, but I feel like yep. we at least had a year of development. Mm-hmm. Last we, year was our first big year. Yeah, so I mean, I feel like this has almost been almost a four-year process from the time we mm -hmm. first kind of was just beta testing to involving counties in early level, then we created FRM team. Over those four years, I would say 95%, 99% of the questions we get are about the deer browse severity index. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's because like foresters, you know, we have professional foresters conducting this measurement and knowing species and doing a stem count by height is very straightforward. 
uh, a lot of the questions go about um, the browse and are they getting the browse correct? And I think it brings up that browse is incredibly subjective in terms of measurement. We're trying to make it objective. Mm -hmm. There's even been folks out there, um, academic folks that have tried to uh, come up with new measurements, uh, twig age, or they might use uh, top 10 tallest seedlings. But there's just a number of metrics out there that are trying to get at this, this deer. What is the deer impact? And I just, I wanna, like, one of the things that we in the forestry community need to think about as we're spending all this time focused on this is, well, what, how are we gonna use this information? So let's say we get the deer browse severity index perfect. We can measure it really well. Is it, are, are we using it to alter deer quotas? Because uh, that hasn't shown to be hugely significant through time, maybe on a very small scale. But at the end of the day, I think we're trying to grow trees. We're trying to understand, is there a problem here mm -hmm. for whatever reason it might be, deer or otherwise, and how do we get those trees to, to get past browse height or just in general make it into advanced regeneration stages? And I just see a lot of time and energy being focused on this, well, we have to get the deer browse part first, but, and, and if we're not getting that part, then it just seems like a lot of time and energy is being focused on that specific part. And it's not that that part's not important. Um, I think there's a lot of politics that revolve around deer and we should be doing some type of assessment of what the deer impacts are. But I would say that we as professional forestry community need to be spending 99% of our time just getting the forest regeneration, the stem counts by species, by height. If we get that right and we're understanding that and we get enough data through time and we can start to see Who's doing what from a civil culture perspective that's successful? And we can say, look at what they did for their prescription. Here's where they, they're located. This is their habitat type. Let's, let's try to replicate that. And are we successful? Um, I see that, the, that the, probably the biggest you know, gains to be made in this whole thing is from us, from a forestry perspective, doing new civil culture techniques and, and changing things from the forestry side. Deer are here to stay. You know, we can we can bicker about whether we're going to decrease a county quota or not, but we've been doing that since the days of Elder Leopold, and I think we have to kind of give up on that in some regard and say, well, we can change things from a forestry side um, and, and really focus on that. And, and whether you have high deer impacts, moderate deer impacts, or in trying to really kind of like use that as a fine tweaking tool to your civil culture technique, I think that's just noise. So what I'm hearing you say, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but we probably should focus more importantly on the height data that we're developing from these plots to answer that question, are we successfully regenerating to whatever standard? Yeah. So looking at that, are we recruiting seedlings to saplings to free to grow trees and to really focus and analyze that, that height data. If you're, if you're a professional forester in the state of Wisconsin or you're an academic that you know, wants to come up with the next great deer you know, severity index, I would just say that, that you know, we need to think backwards. And the thing that we can all control is what does that harvest look like? What is the scale of that harvest? Are we doing artificial region? Are we doing site prep? Those are the things that we can affect, and that's what's going to affect the success of our forestry regeneration, not whether we, you know, the height of our tall 10, 10 seedlings, and then therefore it's a moderate index, and because it's a moderate index, now I'm going to 
employ this technique. You know, we, we're we not there to making that bridge, and I don't even know if it's worth well, the, going down that road. Yeah, in the end, it sounds like what we can do is maybe look with a little efficiency at what works and what doesn't work, and then try and tease out why didn't it work or why did it work. And this is just one more piece of the puzzle. Of, of the 72 counties in, in Wisconsin, I mean, at least 70 of them have deer impacts, right? And, and whether it's severe deer impacts or moderate deer impacts, it's deer are present on the landscape. They always will be. And so we just need to kind of start to focus on that. What's working, what's not. Um, and I think if we do that, we're going to see much more kind of our energies will be focused in a more kind of um, uh, positive output manner than trying to come up with the next deer browse. But yeah, I go on a little bit of a tangent because everyone's focused on this deer browse, deer browse, deer browse. And, you know, in some ways it should be, do you see evidence of deer? Yes or no. And if you do, you know, okay, we need to be considerate of that. But I don't know of any, like, civiculture routes you would go in which you completely ignore the presence of deer. That you're going to go down a direction because you don't see deer impacts, and so therefore it's going to allow me to do this technique. Typically mm -hmm. that's not the case. But yeah, and I know in the past, you've mentioned that it's really important that we be able to look at exclosures to be able to judge some of this as well. Um, for recommend, so we have foresters out in the field. They say, hey, you know, I'd really like to put in some exclosures. Yeah. I'd like to figure out what this looks like. What would be your recommendation for them on how to do that? Yeah, so we, we are advocating with this FRM, and we recently just got some buy-in from wildlife, from DNR Wildlife. Um, I think they're going to start setting up some exclosures um, on some of their properties just because the, the contrast is so important. And it's important, one, for us from foresters to understand kind of um, what the potential of that ground is. So that's that's one of the big things with the deer exclosures. You can see this is how many stems per acre and what the species diversity potential is on this property and then obviously what we're actually getting. There's huge um, kind of gains to be made from a social perspective as well. I think, you know, if I had my dad in the woods, uh, he probably wouldn't understand the impact of deer because the forest just, this is what the forest looks like. And so... I think that there's some social gains to be made there as well. Um, but if, if a forester, and we so we totally advocate that immediately post-harvest, and by that I mean maybe the first year post-harvest, um, if a forester wanted to set up a deer exposure, we, the, the, the kind of, there's lots of different ways to do it, but the cheapest, easiest, most kind of efficient way to do it is to do a five meter by five meter uh, what's oh, that about? Now you're going metric. I'm going yeah. metric. Uh, <laughs> Scientist. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Like 16 feet, something like that. Um, so, uh, but, but no, what we found, it, so the research is, and the reason I use the metric is because we found that as soon as you go beyond 7 meter by 7 meter, the deer would jump in. But if you make a small enough box, you the deer do not want to jump in, even though they're physically capable to jumping over the fence. So you can keep a... a Smaller fence. That's right. So if you go five meter by five meter, your fence only needs to be about two meters, maybe even 1.8 meters in height. And so you can go out by a roll of, I'm going to switch back to you because they typically sell fence Feet. by six foot, <laughs> five foot fence. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you can, for a roll of fence, you can, you know, go by at Fleet Farm or, you know, somewhere local. We use eight T-posts. So you have the four corners and then we do one T-post in between each of the corners, so there's eight total, and we literally just wrap the the kind of welded wire, something that's got some rigidity, mm -hmm. kind of holds itself up, um, wrap it around and use some kind of trapping wire or something to kind of hold it on. 
that work, works really well. We've built hundreds of those and had really good success. What foresters or anyone that's going to build them needs to know is that they do require maintenance and that you got to be checking them once, if not twice a year, because we do get kind of limbs falling down, bears, if you're in an area with bears, they love to kind of pull on them, pull them down. So the beauty of the welded wire is you typically just go out there and kind of push them back up. You know, if there's a tree that's fallen on it, just cut it down, you know, and or you know, cut it off the fence and lift the fence back up. We're going to start exper experimenting. We have been experimenting with just the pot. There's like a poly fence mm -hmm. that's, it's lightweight. It's actually quite thick. Like the, the stuff I'm talking about, you can't rip at all. You'd have to cut it with shears or something. Um, and we, they advertise that it has a 10 year lifespan. Our stuff has actually lasted longer than 10 years. Uh, you can buy this in five, six foot heights, but also eight foot heights. And we find that for large exclosures, let's say I'm going to do a half acre opening and I want to you know, build exclosure on that, I'll take about eight gauge, eight gauge hog wire or monofilament and I'll use fencing staples and staple that um, eight gauge monofilament into the trees, my, my existing mm -hmm. trees. And, uh, and then I'll use um, hog rings and hang this eight foot poly fence from the the monofilament kind of like a shower curtain and i the important thing with deer is that they love crawling under they'd rather crawl under than jump mm -hmm. over and so we typically take like a log or something and kind of hold, hold it down. down ground staples yeah. work well but we're now trying to experiment a little bit with that so we've always done that for the larger openings but those are expensive it, it depends on what the management yeah. objective is i know we've used that in field settings before where we didn't have logs to lay down on the bottom we've actually put the the wire on the bottom too yeah. and then hog ringed it anything that they can't can't crawl under it's i mean just, but, i'd yeah. rather have the fence only be seven seven and a half feet tall and a large opening and have a half foot on the ground that i can secure um, but we're now trying that with kind of smaller these smaller exclosures um in running monofilament around the eight t posts of the five by five and seeing can we get away uh with doing a poly fence we haven't tested those enough to suggest them um, but yeah, if, if you're a forester out there or, or a land manager and you want to put up some, some small exclosures, and again, the, small, the part of the small thing is not to grow trees, it's to give you an understanding of the spatial variability of the potential landscape, right? How many stems per acre could you get on this landscape? What is the species diversity potential? So if someone says, well, should I do one big half acre one or three smaller ones? I'm typically in the boat of doing three small ones because it's just telling you something about the landscape. You're not physically trying to grow timber here, you know? And so um, there are some cases where people out, you know, in Pennsylvania have done large exclosures for the purpose of growing timber. And yeah, I hope we don't ever get to that point. But um, but yeah, so to do some small exclosures, you can throw the T-post in the back of a truck and in a day you can set up and three Casey, or four exclosures. We're, we're interested in, on a broad scale, collecting FRM data within people who put up Exclosures, right? Yeah, FRM is a great tool to be used kind of in concert with building these exclosures. You're really able to better track um, how your regeneration is progressing in your typical condition and in that same condition without deer. Um, that being said, deer are always going to be on the landscape. That's not going to change, but it is really putting um, what is your land capable of producing without these deer here? What is the potential of the site? Do we have much FRM data yet? Not, in, in exclosures? Not with, within exclosures. We're hoping to keep um, building them, encouraging county foresters and other foresters to kind of hmm. start building that network up and including that in our data set. 
So for foresters thinking about, they've never put in exclosures before, they're thinking, hey, this might be good to track on a timber sale I just completed. Yeah, absolutely. I want to put this in. What does it cost to put in a small-scale exclosure that you're talking about? One of about? those 5 by 5 meter, uh, you know. So it's like a 15 by 15? Yeah, 15. let's say 15 by yep. 15 feet uh, with uh, 6 foot tall fencing, 8 T-posts. Um, I bet you can you can do it. I've priced them out under uh, $100. And you might even be able to do about $85, $90 per exclosure. And I would say if you can set up three, uh, that's that's always better than just one because we, we know that you know you can set up spots that just lack yeah. regeneration and you're trying to capture that variability, that patchiness. So setting up three small ones is always ideal if you can do it, if you can afford it. Um, yeah, it doesn't take any time. And you know, and I always suggest that um, if, if I'm a land manager and I'm managing two cover types, I have oak and northern hardwoods, um, I would be setting up three in each of those cover types, so I would be set up six a year, but I'm not just setting up six and then forever done. I'd try to set up six each, six, six new exclosures each year would be my goal. And again, you're talking maybe 500 bucks in a day of time, um, very doable. And if I'm doing that each year and being able to track that through, it's gonna take about five years for those exclosures really to be able to tell you something valuable. Mm -hmm. But at year five, I probably will start seeing some big differences inside and out. And again, it's telling you what the potential of the landscape is. I think a lot of people hear deer exclosures and they say, well, that's not realistic. Deer have always been on the landscape. No one's advocating for zero deer. No one's advocating that that's right. what the land should look like. Um, I think we're just trying to say, like, you know, as we start to see maybe species decline, well, is it a deer issue or is it a different issue, a worm issue, a, a you know, vegetation competition issue? soil nutrient issue and so we're trying to say you know is this a deer thing or not a deer thing but and if so you know how can we start to manage the forest in ways that might help that species mm -hmm. so a forester or a land manager or anybody decides to put a couple plot or exclosures in how would you recommend they actually put those into a site or where would they put them on the site is there something you're looking for to be a, a part of the exclosure or to keep out of the exclosure well, from a, from a specific site point, I'm always trying to be representative of the area. So are you expecting regeneration there? So if we just did a big cut, maybe we just did a selection harvest. And so I'm going to pick something that's representative of the rest of the selection area. Um, so do, do you want a, 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 a cut stump in there? It might not be bad um, because if you're trying to assess what stump sprouting is doing and if that's a part of your regeneration kind of um or, or within know, a gap where you within would, a gap you would expect or hope something yeah so you're you're expecting something's there and it's representative of a larger area that you're expecting right. things are there and Many then after that areas. point we say that that's you know systematic you know in terms of our selection but after that i'm trying to keep it as random as possible so within that patch but we know and, and your foresters know too that the center of your gap is probably going to have uh, regeneration uh, at the, the the last point in time, right? So, you know, gaps typically fill in from the edges towards the center. And so uh, the center is going to be probably the hottest, driest point. And so um, it's not that it's bad to have uh, uh, a exclosure in the center of your gap, but you might want some towards the you know, edges of your gap and maybe even in the matrix um, if you're trying to capture natural, you know, regeneration. So... We've been doing this FRM now for, what did you say, two, two years? Two years. Any early observations about yeah. data that we've seen? I think the early data, the most impactful thing that we're seeing is the highlighting of the status of oak regeneration across the state. Um, overall, we're seeing 
uh, really poor oak regeneration um, within stands that are being managed for oak, particularly in the Driftless area in northern Wisconsin. Um, there are some good spots, mainly in the central sands, but for the most part, oak is not regenerating as expected. And when we're looking at kind of those regeneration trajectories, we're seeing oak is getting stalled out right at that three to five height class. So oak is there, but it's not being able to reach that escape level that we'd want for a future timber stand. But we're still seeing it in the central sands, which we, we would expect because we get lots of oak there mm -hmm. easily. But, but on these better, better sites, we're just not seeing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is the long-term trend we've kind of talked about for a long time, that we're losing it on our, our rich sites. We're seeing the oak disappear, but on, we can maintain it. We can grow it on sand whenever we want to. So, or at least we have a, it's easier to grow it there than we have it, mm -hmm. and we can do it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So yeah, hopefully we can start to tease out some of the issues of why this is happening. Is it a deer issue? Is it a management issue? Is it um, just things are changing over time kind of issue? Um, and really start to tease out some of those questions. So as you get more data, you can start to filter it on some of these different things that are being measured, like whether it's in sunlight or not, mm -hmm. what kind of habitat type is it on, and start to, as you said, tease out or answer some more of these finer questions. Exactly. The more different kind of details we can look at in management history and environmental factors that we can better identify what is causing regeneration successes or failures and have that then feedback into kind of our management recommendations. I think it's important that, you know, this is a monitoring tool and so it's kind of like going for a checkup. Like it's not going to tell you, it's not going to answer all your questions, but it's going to say mm -hmm. we have problems here or here are areas that things are going well. And so it, it works really well in combination with like really focused hypothesis testing research. So we can say, well, we're not getting oak in, in, the, in the driftless. Well, let's come up with our yeah, hypotheses let's, let's why. Go, let's go there and And now we're going to set something, is it deer, is it worms, yeah. is it, you know, competition? And then we can really kind of set up something to de definitively. I think oftentimes when we were developing this, this was like, you know, people kind of adding different things, levels of the measurement because they were thinking about, well, we want to be able to say this or we want to be able to say that. And it's hard to do that in a monitoring situation. It's just, it's telling you where you need to go look further and now set up some research. Mm -hmm. So it's important foresters to understand the difference between those things because it's not going to answer their, all their questions, but I think it's certainly going to help us get towards their answers. Mm -hmm. Well, that wraps up the show. We hope you enjoyed it. Have any ideas for future topics? Any burning questions you'd like us to take a stab at? Drop us a line at fedi at uwsp.edu, and we'll try to answer your questions on a future podcast. Hey, Brad, podcasts don't happen on their own. Thanks to Haley Freider and Dan Martinson from UW-Stevens Point's Forestry Education and Development Initiative. Today's episode of Silvacast was brought to you by Crown Class Industries. As we say at Crown Class Industries, you're at least a co-dominant in our eyes. <laughs>